0: Ladies and gents, welcome back to Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. Uh, lots going on out there in the worlds of news, politics, dystopia, uh, here in the formerly Great Britain. And as always, I'm right here with you to try and make sense of it all. Uh, to make sense of the senseless, as it were. Uh, a quick off of the cap before we get started to the Patreons and the YouTube community members. Uh, thank you for continuing to support the show and the punk politics stuff, and indeed those alternative paper reviews uh, that I've been putting out most mornings uh, for the last month or so. Um, now, veteran listeners of the show, my my cult members, if you like, my people of the booch, my real influencer crew. Uh, we'll be aware that when the podcast began, um, it's over two years ago now, I think, uh, it started off as very dystopian, very tech, very media-focused. And it has sort of descended over that time um, into more satirical territory, certainly over the last year or so. Now, critics may argue that the vibe of the pod now is basically that its sanity has collapsed in parallel with my own, and indeed the sanity of the Western world. Um, but occasionally we do like to dip our toes back into the worlds of, uh, media, tech, futurism, um, and to look at things industrially, you know, through a sort of faux academic prism, if you like. And what I mean by that is that I still love occasionally to get the odd guest on, uh, from a specific flavor, a specific breed, if you like, of media or tech, and to get a feel of their experience, for how they've seen things change over the last few years, um, you know, and then maybe get a, a sort of view of how optimistic or how hopeful they are for the future, if only to sort of fill that gaping chasm <laughs> within myself, from where that is one hundred percent absent within me. Um, so, if you've been tuning in for a while, you might have recall uh, you might recall I've had a few guests on. Uh, over the last couple of years, um, there was a Professor Ollie Mould from uh, the Human Geography Department at Royal Holloway. There was Professor Martin Spinelli of Podcasting and New Media. That's at Sussex University. But then also, industrially, we've had uh, Ian Dale from LBC on. Uh, he's talked about his experiences within broadcast and news. I've had Charles Arthur on from The Guardian. Um, and I spoke to him about what he refers to as social warming—that's social media's effects on political polarization now and then going forward. Anyway, you get the idea. Um, so tonight we're sort of going back into that vein. Um, tonight I'm very excited to have a uh, a guest of similar prestige and a breadth of experience. Uh, He's been working in broadcast media, radio and mainstream television for almost 40 years. I used to listen to him when I was a kid as he hosted the uh, Pepsi Network chart on Capital FM. Please welcome to the show, Neil Dr. Fox.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much. What an introduction.
0: There you go. You've earned it. Um, well,
1: God, if I'd had a penny, well, sod that. A pound would be much better, really, for everyone that said I grew up listening to you, and if you, <laughs> if you went on to say I used to push play and record on my cassette recorder and try and cut you out of the
0: chart, I'd get another quid. Well, there you go. I mean, that was—I yeah. had that sort of banked in my head. I was like, shall I tell him that I used to record stuff? Oh my did. Look, those were in
1: the good old days when you had to make a choice about buying music, right? So you either listen to it on the radio or you listen to the records your mates have bought. Or if you were lucky, you went out and bought some stuff yourself. But you had to really think about what you were going to buy. And when you couldn't afford it, because music was expensive, you push play and record and you try to work out that time when I was just about to talk on the radio. And yeah. you push it, cut me out, and then as soon as I'd finished, you, you'd play, you push record again, until you'd cut all of me out of the
0: link. That's I, fine. I suppose I, it's like, yeah, it's like mixed blessings when somebody says, like, I used to listen to you all the time, and then they kind of bookend it with, like, I did used to kind of cut you out of the stuff, though.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's fine. They were listening. They counted it as a listener. That that obviously in the listening figures counted. And if they have figures were really good, we got paid more. So, you know what? I was happy. At the end of the day, I was happy. No, it's good. It was part of people's experience. I did the same when I was a kid, listening yeah. to Tony Blackburn do the chart. I didn't have a cassette then, but, I, you know, you just want to listen to the songs. That's what it was all about on a Sunday afternoon.
0: Sure, sure. And it's uh, actually one, one thing I wanted to... Um... To, to get your thoughts on, I suppose my first question for you would be like, look, if we look back at that Pepsi network chart period and then you went on to Pop Idol sitting alongside Simon Cowell and then there's all of these Sony Radio Awards and Smash Hits poll winners awards. and a, Like, how does it feel to have come up that trajectory, which is all very impressive and everything, but to have now reached the peak by appearing on this podcast?
1: Yeah, I know it's uh it's something obviously 40 years ago. I didn't I, I knew there was something to look forward to. I didn't know this clearly you weren't even born then, but you know, um yeah, I made it. I, I made mean, it eventually. But no, it's good. Look, I have I've been very lucky. I did start nearly well, it was 40 years ago. Back in 1984, was when I first appeared on my very first radio station, which was called Radio Wyvern, which was back in what, what was called Independent Local Radio, ILR, which were about 130 stations in the end, all those classic local stations that a lot of people have grown up with, capital, you know, Piccadilly in Manchester, Metro in Newcastle, BRMB in Birmingham, Clyde in Scotland. Yeah, you know, these really big stations that really became massive in their local communities. And all of that sadly has gone. All of mm. that has now gone. Radio's changed so much. You know, it isn't for the better. You know, it's for the better for some people's bank accounts, but it's not for the better, I don't think, I would say for the radio industry in general, because you have three massive groups that own everything now. You've got the BBC. You who know, I kind of just think, oh, it seems so, most of it seems, for me, just needs to be completely rethought. They need to rework how they finance the whole thing. They need to cut down an awful lot. They mm-hmm. just need to have a few radio channels and two TV channels and then just compete commercially with everyone else. But I'm sure maybe we'll talk about that later on. And then you've got, you've got Global Radio, mm-hmm. Global Radio, who basically, a capital LBC, heart smooth you know radio x so they've got an awful lot of radio covered and have just gobbled up all those little local stations just to become big big national brands and bauer have done the same they've got magic and they've got kiss so they've and then they've got greatest hits radio as well so between those three they probably own i think about 96 or 97 percent of every radio station people listen to in this country which is just shit really i think it's just too much really but um and they do it really well don't get me wrong they do what they're doing very well but what what you've got is you've it all sounds the same it's all very big and branded and um there isn't any quirkiness amongst it it's right. all very safe to me um and and that means safe equals a bit dull after a time and you know it's, it's very predictable but you know and all those local stations it's funny how when you think of voices on TV and voices on radio, we've gone from what was very home counties to, in a way, very eclectic now. So a lot of the main voices you hear on telly and adverts everywhere are regional accents from everywhere, which is sort of brilliant now. And yet on radio, you
0: don't really hear that because all of that's disappeared. I was well, thinking, like, it's it's a shame. And, and look, I don't work in professional broadcasting. I, you know, I, I do this as a side gig and I'm very passionate about it, but it's not, you know, I just want to be clear about that. But my my perception of local radio from what I've heard from my old man, because he worked in the in, in the game for many, many years, uh, is that back in the day, local radio used to be a sort of training ground. Like you would have people coming up, volunteering to do the night shift, to um, to cut your teeth in what it means to do like live radio, to interact with listeners, take calls and so on, think on the fly. Um, And then those guys would rise up and they would be the faces or voices more accurately of your capital, of your Radio 1 and so on. And my perception is now that a lot of the local radio, not only has it been bought up by the big boys, but it's also, is it not like all syndicated and largely voiceless, just like Greatest Hits stuff happening? I think there is a lot of that, I
1: think. Yeah. And... um yeah a lot of it all comes from say you know Leicester squares so or of, most of global stuff and, and you know and this is where I, it, things need to change we're in a slight interim period at the moment I think so y- you've got regulators saying that if you want to have a local license for example in the You know Newcastle area you've got to have a local show coming from there so you know so heart will be basically the entire day will come from London and Leicester Square but you'll have one local show it's sort of in a way a box ticking exercise so it still keeps the regulators happy but it's just it's not really right it's it's not one thing or another and eventually all that will go they'll change all that and they've got to change it really because otherwise you know, commercially, so on the one hand, I'm not sort of knocking the big boys, but, you know, commercially, they've slightly got their hands tied, even though they've got giant monopolies. Because on the one hand, you've got that. And then you've got this in a way, this ridiculously outdated uh, institution called the BBC that, you know, we still have to I have to buy a license to listen or watch the bbc i don't i listen to nothing on the bbc i watch literally nothing on the bbc and yet i have to pay for it and in a world where you go well i'd I'd like to listen to no i'll I'll get apple tv for seven pound 99 a month that's my choice it's got some good stuff if i don't like it i can always say i don't want it similarly with netflix or disney or paramount with a zillion channels and choices you kind of go do I want it? Do I want to pay mm-hmm. for it? Yes or no? And you do kind of go, so this, it seems so out of date that someone's going to go, you have to have a license to listen to TV. So my kids who are 22, 21 and 17, they kind of go, well, that, that's bollocks, isn't it? Why do I have, to have a license? <laughs> you kind of go, well, technically, you know, I know you're at university and technically your house needs a license. And they go, well, we haven't got a telly. I just watch everything on my laptop. Yeah. And you kind of go why do i have to have a license and, and it's really hard to explain well that's sort of the law and yeah. they go well, that's a ridiculous law i and feel go, like yeah. i'm, I'm so so- right in the midst with the, the guy the people at the bbc have got some big thinking to do because they're going to have to end up with some kind of um pay-per-view model at some mm. point and they're going to have to actually go if we really think we're that good then mm. we're going to have to say it's 499 or 799 a month and then you can get all of this and if you want bbc sport it will cost you a bit more they'll have to go down some kind of funding model like that knowing that an awful lot of people will just go well i don't want you yeah. but then you've got to cut your cloth and just go well maybe we can't have seven different national radio channels and bbc beat- you see local radio and about five different TV channels. You just got or well, maybe we have one or two and, and and say three big radio networks. Again, like you have to be commercial, right? You just have to you have to look at it commercially and go, how many people want to watch this now? And yeah. be relevant for 2024
0: and the future. I feel like I'm I'm sort of stuck in the crosshairs with that because I I accept and and like even the fact that we have a public service broadcaster that is at least on paper politically neutral. Uh, yeah, I, I think there's a place for that. I also agree that it's probably got a bit out of hand in terms of like whenever I hear a, a promotion for like Radio One's one big weekend or like something like I'm like does does the BBC really need to run its own festival? Does it? <laughs> you know, it's yeah. like little things like that or mm. or indeed you know the hundred odds or hundred and fifty odds BBC radio stations out there. I'm a bit like surely it would be possible to run BBC News 24, BBC One. And then I get into the the next juncture of thought where I go like a level deeper and I'm like, in in an age or in an era where linear broadcasting is gradually disappearing. And as you point out, things are moving more progressively into a pay-per-view, like on-demand model. Then how can you realistically continue to ask people to put their, I don't know, I, I feel like maybe it should be, they should get rid of the TV license and just fund it through tax. Maybe. I don't know.
1: Well, that that will be a thought, wouldn't it, really? But I think you have to I think they've definitely got to cut down on the amount they offer because there's so much out there from all the other streaming platforms who are doing brilliant jobs as well. Um, I mean, when sometimes when you although we do do some great drama and some great TV in this country now, when you compare it to some of the stuff that's on offer with like Apple and Netflix, where you can chuck basically movie budgets and create every, you know, a 10-episode ten, a ten series where every episode is like a movie. They're incredible. Yeah. With the same directors and actors. You kind of go, this is really good stuff. I don't really watch anything anymore. I mean, I don't, actually. And I really genuinely say, I, I don't, there's nothing I watch on the BBC. And you mentioned earlier, um, we should, on paper, it's a really nice idea to have a public service broadcaster. And I'm nodding, going, yep, I agree. But... Uh, And and technically, they should be politically neutral. They're not, though. I mean, so here, like, they're not. They really aren't. They're biased, and we don't want bias. So if they did do what none of the other services do, and just let you give you here are the facts of the news today. This happened today. Yeah, Yeah, yeah. That would be refreshing, and that would be. I think that would be a really good reason for existing because you'd go, everyone else has got political bias, but they'll go, well i don't know we pay for it you don't pay for it it's free so suppose, we, you know if i want to be fox and want to be really biased yeah. towards Trump, we can be but i think the beebs should be super if they could be neutral but i don't think they are
0: i don't think it's possible for anyone to earn that medal of being politically neutral in this at this time i think everything's so polarized and divided that even if you did have a completely neutral fact-based report on let's say brexit or ukraine or like there's always going to be a subset of people out there who don't like what they're hearing and they will shout it from the rafters that that was biased that it was unfair that they didn't ask the right yeah. experts or contributors so yeah maybe maybe they're on a hiding to nothing really um yeah well
1: that's it, that is hard and of course look you have finite time to broadcast the news so if you've got half an hour someone has to make the decision what stories do you do you put in there i mean Mm. literally 24-hour news could be just literally full of different stories but if you've got a half-hour news program someone the editor is making a decision what we put in there and obviously some people will go why didn't you put this in and other people will go why did you put that in so yeah i agree it's you're onto a bit of a hiding for nothing it's a tough one but um i used to the, the current director general and what have you um I weirdly used to work with him because he used to be part of the Pepsi Network chart show team. He worked at Pepsi okay. when, when we um, were starting the Pepsi Network chart show. So, and he, you know, he's a very shrewd commercial operator. To me, it's not a surprise that they've chosen someone who's commercially super savvy. Right. Because you need someone in that job right now who can go, okay, the world is commercial. We are in a way this strange being that isn't. And we have to try and find a modern way of existing because i wouldn't want to get rid of the bbc i don't want to just get rid of it i Hmm. think they do some things like obviously people always point to the natural history programs they do them brilliantly yeah they often do them in conjunction now with other people as well because to put those programs together super expensive yeah and um but they do have you know some of the best people in the world clearly that do it and some of that stuff is brilliant um, the way I suppose I used to say the way they used to do sport was fair, but reality is sports gone to the highest bidder now. So, you know, football,
0: mm. you know,
1: football doesn't exist really on, apart from our match of the day, it doesn't exist anymore. Live foot footy, they've got the rugby obviously, but they've got second tier sports in a way, but in a way it's good that they have that stuff. And there is access to that for free for, well, I say for free, people say it's for free. It's not, it costs you 15 quid a month. Yeah. And you have to think of it like that. It's cost you 15 quid a month to watch that. And well, okay. Apple's only seven ninety nine a month. So you go, oh, okay. So it's not that cheap. Some people say it's very good value. Obviously, if you look at Sky, it's expensive. And if you want all the sports channels, it is. You know, really. Yeah. Start, yeah. Oh, blimey, how much, am I, how much am I paying a month? You look at it and go, shit, I can't
0: believe it. The thing I like, never get about the Beeb is... Like, so when we look at the nature shows, right? I, I agree. That is a style of show that is quite expensive commercially if i wonder if it makes a return but it doesn't feel like the sort of thing that itv or like sky maybe even would produce because commercially it would be such a risk to throw that much money into a nature show yeah Um, so i think that's really good that they do that the thing that confuses me about the boob is like i'll look at the saturday listings every now and then and most of the shows will actually be carbon copies of what has been commercially successful on like ITV or whatever. And then I'm like why, you, like, why do you feel the need to produce commercially viable shows when you're not commercial? Do you know what I mean?
1: Well, I guess there's always been, and I think we used to have this to a certain extent with radio, that... Um, You know, Radio One, obviously, if you think Radio One started in 1967, Mm. you know, and Tony Blackburn, like, you know, who's just turned 80, wasn't it? When he was doing the first Radio One breakfast shows, his daily audience was 23 million. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God, that's insane. You go. Yeah, there was no alternative. I mean, that was it. That was your choice. Right. It was that or nothing. Um, So but, you know, from those days and then, of course, you had in 73 commercial radio started and you know, lots there was in our competition. And then mm. probably in the late 90s, we started to have a lot more commercial radio starting um, when FM's and medium AM's started to split. And then we had DAB. So now there are th- literally thousands of radio stations you can get. There's almost too much. Mm. It's a bit like TV, just there's too much. How do I know what to listen
0: to or how to watch? But that, that must have know. been a weird period to live through because you were doing the Pepsi Network chart at a time, as I mentioned, when I was a kid. And that pop culture universe seemed so electric and massive and glitzy like there was pop superstars like i mean i know that we have beyonce and rihanna and stuff now but to contrast those with like your michael jacksons and madonnas (laughs) back in the day and your guns and roses with whoever the big band is now is just to me like there's no comparison these were colossal stars and as you've pointed out, there was only, I mean, there was more selection, radio-wise, but still not, like, loads. There was a, a Capital FM, there was Radio 1, and then there was, what, like, MTV Europe around that same sort of yeah. time? Um, so it felt like that was a really electric time to live through. But then it must have, as you as you mentioned, it must have sort of... Um, like diluted itself a little bit more as more of these stations came online, as MTV Europe turned into MTV UK and all of these other music video channels started exploding. And, you know, now we get into a period where we're we're at now, where there's not just loads of music video channels, there's not just loads of DAB and FM options, but there's also people like me who are like (laughs) creating podcasts who are also pulling people's attention away. So did it feel at any particular time like thick like you were like oh man I'm I missed like 96 or 95 when it was still you know yeah oh,
1: so well, that- there's no there's no doubt uh, that I think the times I feel very lucky actually I'm a 62 year old bloke right and I feel very lucky in the sort of generation I've grown up in because I think we've ex- you know when I started playing on the radio I was playing seven inch singles right seven singles but, and very quickly was also playing CDs then you know then of course things we started moving. As things started, the technology has changed an awful lot, right? So if you go from uh, a few radio stations playing singles to then a few more playing CDs, that's all fine. Mm. It was still radio was very big. You had big record companies who were basically you know, working well with the radio stations. If you didn't get on the radio, no one was going to hear your song. So you needed the radio. So we worked really well with all the record labels. They were signing people and putting a lot of money into artists. And you have to remember that for every, for all the, out of 10 artists, probably one of them became successful Mm -hmm. through a record label. And that meant that if you had to, if you're a label and you invested in, you've signed someone. your A&R department, your artist and repertoire, signed a new band, yeah. Right? you then got to go into a studio and produce it, make it look nice, make a video and what have you. And Simon Cowell, before he was a TV star, he was a really good friend of mine and he used to run a small record label called Fanfare and was always a big record man. And that's where his genius was. And it still is really, uh, knowing what people like to listen to. So as a record man, and I knew him really well, he'd go, To put a new band out there costs a million quid, costs a million quid to maybe make an album, produce an album, make some Mm. videos, a million quid. Now, if you think you might have 10 acts and out of them one does well, Mm. that means 90% fail. That's a lot of money that you are losing. So it it was not a very good model. So I think the record labels had to try and find a better model. And while all that was happening, came this digital revolution. So if you think of Napster that then turned into, say, iTunes, and, and then the music streaming platform, Spotify and Amazon, that's completely changed things absolutely transform the music industry because the music industry was slow and lazy and didn't see it coming but what it meant was in a way no one ever had to as now no one buys a record unless you go out and buy a vinyl copy yeah it's done very although it's growing it's a very very small percentage when we've ended up in the situation that you can get every record that's ever been made pretty much for seven pound 99 a month when I was the last album I bought cost me 13 quid for one album. Yeah. And you had to when you're a kid growing up, you had to think, what am I going to spend my pocket money on this week? Will I buy it on that single or that single? Right? Now you just think I have everything. And yeah. it's almost made music worthless, sadly, because you can just go swipe, 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 swipe. So The the idea of, in a way, you've grown up in an era where you probably had favourite bands, you got the record, whether it was on an album or a CD, you pulled open the record sleeve, you read the notes, you learnt the lyrics. Yeah, yeah. Who gives a shit who produced it? But you knew who produced it, what the fan site was. You knew lots of info and you felt you had invested time and effort Mm. into really liking a band. And we don't quite have it in the same way now. So even actually the acts you say like Rihanna and Beyonce, you've got to remember they started 20 years ago. Amazingly now. Right. So they were sort of just in the early days of digitization when labels were still signing people Mm. and still making big stars. And I suppose a lot of this has come to the light recently with what happened with Taylor Swift. And she was all saying, well, I can't believe that my label sold all my stuff and they were going to have my rights forever. That was kind of the record. That was the model. Hello, you're a new artist and you have nothing. I'm going to invest a million quid mm. into getting you in a studio, making a lovely album with a great producer and making videos. So far it's cost you nothing. Right. I'm doing, I'm putting all the risk up and the, the other side of it is, you'll make a load of money, but I've got the rights to this album that I've basically funded hmm. forever. Now, of course, some people go, forever? That seems outrageous. But um, it was sort of the model, and everyone sort of was quite happy to a certain extent with the model. Then when you got better known, you could maybe go back to your record label and go, hang on, can I have a slightly better deal? I want a better percentage. And I don't think that quite the truth about what's happened with, Taylor Swift and I was talking to a mate yesterday who was involved in all that and, and knew all the facts and he went actually her and her family and her father did have quite a good stake in the record company that owned her right to start with but she just wanted total control so she has gone you know I'm very ballsy. has gone I'm gonna re-record all my albums yeah right and then and actually she's done deals with the big radio networks that go I will come and do a free gig for you guys every year, but you can't play any of the old Taylor Swift albums. You only have to play the new ones so I get all the rights. Yeah. So she, she's she got the power. And, of course, other artists now. But it's what I'm saying is it's changed the whole relationship between label, artist, and radio stations. It's all changed now. The streaming platforms have become very, very, very powerful.
0: You know what's and, interesting, though, about that is, like, so again like I'm not in the music industry but I know people yeah. who have been signed to labels and they've told me fucking horror stories about the the contracts that new artists are being signed to now where 20 years ago as you say um somebody would put up a lot of money they'd put yeah. some cash into a music video the promo getting nice photos taken the recording process etc cetera, etc cetera. um but then the record company would take x amount of profits from the record sales is the key thing nowadays as i'm sure you're aware but listeners may not be the record companies are like well nobody's really buying records anymore and effectively what we are now is a marketing agency so we're going to sign you to our veritable marketing agency and then when you like, the streaming is not really going to pay anything, so we won't make any money from the streaming. However, we do have a stake in Spotify, so we've got some, some equity there. And then the, the way that they make their money back from their investment is they take money out of the touring revenue, which I don't think they ever used to do. I think that was, like, the artist can run their own tour and sell the merch, and now, obviously, we have income coming in from social media, but the record company will now take that as, like, a 360 deal. Everything is up for grabs. They're like, if we spend this money promoting you, you're going to become a big star and we want a little piece of everything. Every way that you make money comes back to us now. Like, isn't that horrifying? Well, I would say,
1: knowing quite a lot of deals that have been done or people that run those labels, I would say, look, it's changed. I think what the record labels have learned is there might be some shitty deals out there which sound horrible, but I think in general, the majors sign better deals now with artists because. They have to, otherwise the artists won't go with them. Mm. You're right. They're sort of distribution marketing platforms, but they still have an awful lot of power. So a lot of people would, There are very few artists would not like to be with a label. It sounds great being all independent, Mm. but then you go, so who's going to put, so when you want to go out on tour or want to try and get a support slot on a tour, you know, it costs money to go into rehearsal rooms to get a band together mm. to get session musicians to come out with you it costs a lot of money so uh, for example i know a new young artist at the moment with her i was talking to her manager yesterday there it's going to cost 50 grand to get her ready for a tour With rehearsals and wow grand, right so it's a lot of money but you know if you think you've got you know a couple of weeks in rehearsal rooms and you've got to get a band and they all need to pay i don't know hundred quid a day or whatever you pay them it really adds up and then you got to do their transport and hotels and so 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 i think you have to remember it's um it's an expensive business this is and people often only look at okay If you look at a successful person, and where look look at Taylor Swift, she's the old. She is like an economy in her own right
0: right now.
1: But she's almost too crazy. If you come one notch down and go, I don't know, let's say Harry Styles, who's enormous but just a superstar, not a global, not mental like she is. But to put him on tour, it costs a fortune. But you look at the success stories and you see what they're making, and you think the people who are invested in him are all making good money. But all the ones that don't make money that aren't massive, they need funding too. And I kind of think you have to remember sometimes for i I'm not defending record businesses because I think there've been some dreadful deals done over the time that were too too much like hand you know handcuffs. But I think it has got better. But they do now put. They don't make money out of record sales. You're right, unless yeah. you're Ed Sheeran and you're having billions of streams. When they're making fortunes, but mm. your average person isn't making money out of that. They still make money out if you get your record played on the radio. There's mm. still money that comes from PRS, Performing Rights Society. You still make money from that if you get a big radio hit. Um, but also, their big money now for all artists is going out playing live. Mm. Uh, but going out playing live is expensive and a lot of smaller and mid-sized venues sadly post-covid a lot of them are closed and they can't afford it a lot of that is because artists have really put their money up because they're trying to earn a living out of it so it's it's a bit catch-22 at the moment
0: yeah Um, well also people are broke now like they haven't been for a long time right so if you look at people's disposable income and what they can reasonably buy with that in terms of like how many pounds per the pint that you would spend on a night out yeah ticket prices I don't Actually, maybe I'm being really naive here, but I don't think ticket prices have gone up that monstrously in the last 20 years. I think it's more to do with getting the taxi down to the station, getting the train in and back, getting some food while you're out, having three or four beers while you're watching the band. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's changed the game, hasn't it? Do, do you it's feel very, that...
1: It's very expensive going out to a CA gig and going to festivals is nuts now. Yeah, it's yeah. Nuts.
0: It's um, crazy. Do you feel, just to bring it back to to radio specifically, do you feel like um, what we're talking about with artists, with Spotify being this sort of endless universe of new music and swipe culture, do you feel like there's an element of that with radio? Like it's not special anymore because you can always flick to another station, you don't build up a relationship with the presenter in the same way, or do you think maybe podcasting has kind of filled that gap or...?
1: It's interesting, you know, because um, you know I'm involved at the moment with uh, trying to build a new music platform mm. that, that we're going to launch later this year. That is all about um, people's favorite songs and why they love them. Okay, so it's got getting back to the emotional experience of why we love a song, mm. um, rather than just it's a song. It's a song that might be special to someone and why. So it makes it a bit. But and I think what's what's really happened over the last yeah let's say last 20 years since digitization since streaming platforms have begun i think what's interesting is that i think radio stations two things have happened one you've got these big stations buying up every other little station and creating national brands so you've got heart Mm. capital magic smooth you've got these big brands out there okay um and they all and they they've become kind of quite bland because you know exactly what you're going to get 24 7. Mm. Now, they've reacted. I Well, in the same way, I think that um, publishing, say 20, 25 years ago, started to have a steady old decline mm. because along came this thing called the Internet. So right. why do I have to buy a mag for five quid when I can just look at it and pretty pictures. Right. So people weren't buying papers. They're not buying magazines. It's, it's that slow, steady decline. And I think radio is not careful. Will do the same, it's already seeing that. So no kids, no kids listen to the radio. Mm. They don't listen to the radio. Because it, and this is sadly really black and white, but so if I speak to my 22 year old daughter, so Scarlet, apart from when I'm on the radio and it's kind of on, on Alexa, you know, in the kitchen, they would never choose to listen to the radio. And mm. um, I kind of go, why? And they go, I don't need to, I've got, if I listen to any station that'll play the same songs literally on rotation, the smaller and smaller playlists on rotation with some lots of adverts yeah and some pretty dull people in between them that aren't very entertaining so wh- why would i do that when i can just make my own playlist and play what i want when i want and you go there's no argument for that right yeah. so you go that's very true and but that's sad so it means if you look at the latest radar figures that came out this week which is aren't the way that radio gets surveyed stations like capital are just dying they're dying on their ass because They relied on younger people. That was a younger audience that when I was on Capital, it was a more mainstream audience. Now they've got Heart in their family as well. Heart's become the big mainstream 30-plus brand. Right. So You're going under that. So they were targeting younger people on Capital. It's a Hit 40, Top 40 station. Kids are going, why would I listen to this? I've got TikTok i've got reels i've got why do i i've got spot why do i why why would i need to listen to that
0: is there an opportunity there for them to so we we talked about newspapers a a second ago you mentioned newspapers and like dwindling like um the publishing industry and so on um and what i noticed with papers is that yeah the like reporting the news and just what happened to people is done because everybody's got the notification, like push notifications on their phone when it happened at five o'clock in the afternoon. They don't need to wait until the next morning, 8am they pick up a copy of the sun. Uh, It's like literally old news by then. Um, And so what I noticed was like newspapers and to some extent, like news stations pivoted aggressively to opinion. So now you have the daily mail's opinion on the front page, Now you have your GB News, your Sky News panels, you have LBC panels, and that's where people go for their analysis now to to gain a deeper understanding or have somebody explain to them what happened and what they feel about it. And I wonder, like, is there an opportunity there? Like, if if Capital looked at it like, look, nobody's coming to the radio to hear their favourite new song, their favourite new artist. Is there a possibility that we pivot to maybe a talk radio wouldn't work, but something around like we're going to tell you about this artist. This is where you come for the interviews. Here's a backstage that, you know, what I mean, it's a thing.
1: I I definitely agree with you that I think they they probably need to address that. I mean, I think radio in general needs to I work for uh, every day for a, a network called Nation Radio and we're a much smaller. We're probably about the fourth biggest network. But the difference between us and Bauer, which is the third is, is a bit of a quantum leap, got to be honest. Right. Um, but I suppose we have the ability to be a little more flexible and maybe play more different, more music, more songs. So we're not so, so tight on our playlist. I mean, I think what's happened is that and I having <laughs> there's always. Uh, there's always a great argument between jocks, DJs, yeah. and our program directors, right? And trust me, me and Chris Tarrant, say so back in some of those meetings 25 years ago, back at Capitol, so we had a legendary program controller called Richard Park, this Scottish bloke, who was a genius when it comes to programming radio. He ended up being the headmaster on Fame Academy. Okay. And so and probably I don't think there's anyone better in Britain still, and he's like in his late 70s, to understand music radio but music radio has changed and music streaming has changed it and i think what they've done is they've gone right people are listening to us for less and less time because they have this other way now of getting their music hmm. we used to be the only way radio that you could listen to music really now there's this other way and it doesn't really cost very much money so if you like music we've all got a music streaming platform on our phone somewhere right so their their argument is that, so we have to make sure, make our playlist so tight so that if ever anyone turns us on, they'll be hearing a big banging song that they love. Now, the problem with that, and then so our argument, and it was 25 years ago, it's the same then, it's probably even more now. You go, yeah, so if why are people listening to us less and less? Is it because of something else or is it because we keep playing less and less songs more and more times? Mm. It's what came first, the chicken or the egg? And I think it's interesting you say, look, podcasting's become very, very popular around the world. And I think what streaming platforms don't give you is any form of connectivity. It yeah. gives you all, right, just get any song I want, anytime. Brilliant, okay? But it's sometimes the bits in between, the DJs, the entertainment, the competitions, phone-ins, whatever. That's what was the human connection. I'm sitting here in my car here and someone else is there and you're in an office here and I'm having a bath there. And in the middle was the was the radio station playing a song and we were all listening at the same time. Mm. And I don't think many of us anymore, sadly, do do many things at the same time. The only thing we probably on mass do together now is watch sport sport there's that great advert sky did a couple of years ago it said um it's only live once and i think that's true so you kind of go yeah i can watch the chelsea game from the other i could watch it on catch up but really i need to be watching it to really Mm. get the excitement from it and i think there aren't that many things on telly really um if you look at even massive shows like strictly come dancing the figures are so small compared to what they were in their height oh yeah but then that really? kind of
0: goes back to like the the choice it's, and the supply yeah. doesn't it it really it's...
1: does we've all got lots of choice now which is brilliant but um i guess it makes it harder sometimes for those in a way that's like the more
0: traditional linear players is there any um i'm, I'm gonna muck rake now a little bit is there, on, is there any uh like DJs or big names, or maybe you don't need to name them, but you could just tell me if they were, like, where they got maybe, like, 5 million listeners or 10 million listeners back in, like, 1995, and they thought, oh, it's because I'm amazing. It's because I'm drawing in 5 million or 10 million listeners. And now, like, time has moved on, and it's actually shown that it's... Like, now there's way more choice, so people aren't enslaved, for want of a better word, to that one conduit. And now it's like their ego... (laughs) has to reckon with the fact it wasn't really you it was, <laughs> you know
1: well, no i think the reality is i don't think we can do our job unless you've got a pretty decent sized ego right yeah. there's got to be something about although there there are different kinds of djs right so if you were people like john peel john peel was always about the music right mm. so he was a music guy right and he got famous for being the bloke that championed new music on radio one Yeah. And so I I don't think he was like an ego jock. But I think all of those, in in a way, like me and so many others that have been big time DJs, breakfast jocks, and all that stuff, we've got to have a certain amount of bravado because we're entertainers. That's our job is to entertain on the radio. That's been our job. So, and I I think we've probably all, at some point, I definitely can say for myself, we all think we're the dog's bollocks. But then you have to do realize that the station is always bigger than you. I mean, Mm. that is the reality. It's a bit like football players. They're a genius football players. But, you know, the team like Man United is always going to be bigger than any one player that goes to play for them, really. Mm. Similar for any big club. And I think none of us want to actually admit that. But I think the truth is if you've got a great DJ on a big station that has a lot of listeners anyway, you can tell whether they like you Mm. Or there, there are big jobs on the other stations too. You can, to a certain extent, work out whether you are doing a good job. But yeah, is it five? I suppose. Look, and you can say this, and this is not in any way trying to mudsler because I think he's an absolutely brilliant broadcaster. But you think Chris Evans, right? Obviously, as a brilliant example of an of an amazing. Natural, gifted, brilliant broadcaster, brilliant, right? Um, from when he went through his, you know, Virgin days, then he went to Radio One and what have you, and then Radio Two had this enormous audience, yeah. And then yeah. Student, the New Virgin Radio, where you had 11 million on that station, and you have one million on this station. You're going to go, oh, they yeah. didn't all follow me there, and beca- but because a lot of people just like what they have. It's not mm-hmm. like they don't like him, uh, but it's like, well, some did. A million went over and went, oh, I'll follow you. But 10 million didn't. They went, oh, stay here and have Zoe ball. I I suppose it's like, in
0: in some ways, it's mistaking yourself for the chef when you're actually the waiter. Do you know what I mean? Like you're (laughs) serving the product, but the product is the station and the music that you're playing and the general vibe and feel and branding. So you're serving it up to people. But then if the waiter moved from this restaurant to the next restaurant, you wouldn't necessarily follow the waiter over there, would you? You'd no. stay where, with the product that you're familiar with and that you've grown accustomed to. Yeah, it's true. I mean, people generally, and I've always grown up.
1: So, you know, I really got into radio when I ended up at university in America for a bit. And I heard a mi- amazing American radio mm. in the early 80s when British radio was really, it was pretty dull. All commercial right. radio was very magaziney and middle of the road, it was dull. I'm sorry it was and the Americans were um, it was unbelievable it was just like they had thousands of stations marketed brilliantly and it just all sounded exciting uh and that's what made me go I want to be on the radio and I think we ended up actually in the UK but understanding what made better radio and we had great radio for a really good radio over here for a time I think and, and I think what you worked out was that um each radio radio station if it's done well radio yeah a radio station is a bit has a personality okay of its own it has a feel and it's made up from clearly the kind of music it plays the kind of jingles it has yeah the way it does its news the way it does its traffic the kind of presenters it employs all those things give it a feel where you just kind of in the olden days when in a way radio was king and i suppose for anyone 30 and above really you kind of went you just liked the feel of a station Mm -hmm. so you might have just gone, I kind of like how capital does things or you go, oh, it's all a bit loud and brash. I kind of like a bit more BBC Radio London hmm. or I like radio to what you had. You liked. It's like choosing your friends. Sometimes people want the big loud ones and sometimes I want someone who's a bit quirky and alternative. And I think radio was a bit like that. At the moment it's all a bit shiny and bland in the really big mainstream mm. um but you definitely i guess still pick your tribe and that's what it is you're going you know do i want heart so it's like happy handbag music lots of sister sledge and abba woohoo and everything's positive in the world <laughs> or or do i want radio x where it's like okay i'm a bit more grungy here's something a bit more alternative and you know Moyle will tell you a slightly cynical gag and do yeah. it in a very clever way so but again it's all about finding who you want to hang out with that day because that's what did radio you, was
0: it's who you're hanging out with did you just out of curiosity so when you you were exposed to american radio and you came back here and you pursued it did you envisage or did you imagine yourself as a presenter as a jock or would you actually have quite like like were you into the music did the music interest you sufficiently that you would have quite liked to have been a john Peel?
1: Oh, I say, well, I've always loved music, still love music and have championed music. I guess a lot of the music I championed was pop and very mainstream. Yeah, yeah. And I guess I got into radio. You know, I had this plan of when I was 24, working for a little station, I wanted to get on a big station. I wanted to be on Radio 1 or Capital. And i made a sort of vow to my dad who thought I was insane to try and pursue this broadcasting career yeah. because it was not a very secure career. And, you know, yeah, I'd yeah. a, all in a good uni and all this kind of stuff. And he went, come on, my son, you can be a captain of industry. And I go, yeah, promise I don't want to be.
0: Yeah, I, yeah.
1: I want to be a jock. And he, he thought I was mental. But um, he said, please at least tell me you had a plan. So I did have this plan, and and the plan all worked. You know, went very well. You know, if I was twenty six. I was on Capital, and it was all going, you know, well. And I I loved it. I loved my time on Capital. Uh, you know, I'd had a great time at Wyvern, my little station. Luxembourg was amazing for nine months. Capital was brilliant, and then I went from Capital to Magic, which was a real gear change. But then we worked uh, me and my old boss Richard Park again. You know, we worked together at Magic. Thought we could do something clever here. So let's turn. M- middle of the road, mainstream into massive, and we turn it all into number one. And it was so again. That was that wasn't as there was. There's no way that was as much fun mm-hmm. as Capital. Capital was, as you said, massive stars, big gigs, glitzy, eight, late eighties. 90s were amazing times who was, really amazing times
0: who was the biggest star that you i imagine you to some extent it becomes a sort of saturated experience like you normalize it but was there any one like massive star that you met in the offices of capital where you were like whoa okay this is this is big like you're tongue tied you've got butterflies in the tummy um chill out. Oh.
1: We were lucky by it. Look, we'd, we'd interviewed everyone and done everything and been round to their houses or hotels or gone to their gigs. Uh, like You know, that was the nature of the beast. And I, I think the first time I interviewed Madonna was quite a daunting one because wow. I'd seen the interview she had done with like Jonathan Ross and they'd been quite awkward. Right. All bit sort of, like, oh God, is this going to be quite hard? But I remember when I'm, we met her, we had to go over to Paris to interview her at a hotel and it would sort of spend a couple of hours with her. And it was actually, she was just brilliant. Really? Me and my producer, yeah, but mainly, mainly because when she, <laughs> when she walked into the hotel suite where we were going to be doing this, I, at the time, was sitting on her toilet, okay, <laughs> with my trousers around my ankles, and my producer was taking a photograph. We just thought it'd be so, diddy-day. and I was sort of thumbs up, piss-takey picture of me sitting on Madonna's bog, yeah. you know, like, honestly, and then she walks in, like, it, are you guys doing
0: yeah yeah and then
1: then it was like okay we just said oh we just thought it'd be really funny take a picture on your toilet And uh, (laughs) and, and thank god she found it funny yeah um and it kind of broke the ice actually so we actually had a really funny conversation with her who was she was on really just she was very funny very witty
0: yeah and
1: then of course the next time i did an interview with her she remembered us for being a bit daft and so yeah. we actually have another really funny you're the toilet guy all right yeah yeah yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know no so we look we, we met some great people over the time and had i think uh as a music lover it's great meeting people but i think the really beautiful thing is when you get and when you feel really privileged is when you get to be in a situation where you're watching them play, play music Very intimately, Mm. and we had a few bands that came in, and we did this thing where we—I used to do a show called the jukebox. You may remember people phone in, request a song. Yeah, yeah. Here's the song. And we did a few of those with some bands where we sort of had, hey, here's Bon Jovi in the studio with us and pick your favourite Bon Jovi song and they'll play it for you. Oh, cool. Yeah. And, you know, so it's like, and you're hanging around and that was brilliant. And so yeah. we did it with a few different artists, Brian Adams. And and when you get to see them, you're literally in a tiny studio and you've got their band in there and you go, wow, this is, I'm yeah. really
0: lucky. Yeah, this is it's like
1: really up, cool thing. up close,
0: raw talent. Oh, Must be really.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose then over the years you got to know some people, and I, I, I really did. I always, heard, like George Michael was such a nice man. But you know, George in the end became a bit sort of paranoid. Didn't really want to go out very much. So in the end, he'd say, "Well, look, just come around my house. We'll do the interview around there." And he's would go and sit, you know, around his house and have a cup of tea, and and then he'd play you songs he he was writing on his computer. So and then you felt, God, I feel really lucky doing this because yeah. here's a really nice bloke who's who's a genius musician. I yeah. Mean, genius musician and you're getting a chance to have a chat with them about how they make songs and that's again as a music lover you go I'm really lucky that
0: weirdly I do. was I was talking to my missus about George Michael uh the other week. I was like I always forget that he passed away and it always feels like he was way too young to go when he did um and she and I had a sort of five ten minute conversation about him where we were like the thing that like I wasn't like a huge you know frothing george michael fan but what i really loved about him was that not only was he very talented uh not only was he british and monstrously successful the world over which is is always nice i think for a brit to see someone do that uh but it was the wit it was the fact that when he was caught short you know in one of his very public situations he then like he didn't put out some sort of big apologetic statement about it he went away recorded that song outside (laughs) sort of yeah. you know took the mick out of it and then did a very tongue-in-cheek video about it all and i was like he doesn't take himself too seriously or he didn't you know he seemed like a really nice guy very charitable and uh yeah, yeah. it's really really sad that he's no longer with us
1: it was very it was very sad actually because he was a you know it's like so many stars i guess you know you, you realize that, look, they're all normal people mm. they're all normal and they've all got their hang-ups and i think a lot of famous people being in this sort of glare of constant publicity i can't imagine what that is like mm. um i can imagine it's not much fun actually some of them some of them do it and handle it really well others find it quite hard mm. i remember the first time i sort of met bon jovi was interesting um when they had that slippery When album out which was just freaking massive moms.
0: yeah yeah i
1: remember I, I don't know after our interview we met at a club in town and after the interview they sort of uh i was wearing um I'm, I'm, i ride motorbikes so i've always loved harleys and so i was wearing a harley t-shirt and they went oh if... and i was carrying a helmet i went, have you have you got your harley outside i went yeah and they, they all came out and wanted to look at my motorbike yeah and we were sort of standing around my motorbike you know just down some corridor chatting bikes because they were into their bikes and i said what are you guys doing now and they went oh, i think we're just going to go and you know have a wander around town yeah and i went i'm not being silly but when you say wander around town, do you literally just mean go and have a wander around the, mi- the West End of London? They go, yeah. And yeah. I went, you're not going to get mobbed. And they go, well, we'll we we'll, we'll up. We'll just go on our own. And and then, but but you know, you think John Bon Jovi's so recognisable, such a dude. Yeah. And you went, I oh, come and just put on a baseball cap and a pair of sunglasses. I just look like any other Yank. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so that was a really healthy way of looking at fame. Yeah. They just, think, you know what, actually, if we don't walk around with bodyguards next to us all the time, no one's going to know. Yeah. Whereas other people, and I, you know, the other end of the scale were people like, you know, Britney Spears. When she came in, you know, it's like six huge bouncers, the giant, you know, black limos. And they had to, you know, check the route she was going to come into the building, you know, and check the lift out. And you go, honestly? It's just a friggin' radio station. There's no one in here. She, we have people in here like her every single day. No one's going to like a Costa mugger or the best. I think that's all to do with image as well. Yeah. And with management. A lot of management are absolute arseholes because they live their dreams through the fame that their artists have. And yeah. so they like to be all, you know, Bobby big bollocks and what happened.
0: The best example of that I ever heard, uh, and this is going back a few years now, but it was when Macy Gray was first blowing up. And Sting and Macy Gray were both at the same award ceremony. And I remember reading somebody's report of it, probably in the Metro Showbiz page or something, and they were saying how Sting just turned up in his car with his wife... And he gets up on stage and he, you know, puts his bass on. He plays a little song, got out, gets back in his car, drives off home. No big deal. And this is Sting, like yeah. the, the police, Shea Stadium, like global superstar. Then you got Macy Gray, who'd had like one hit song by that point, and she came in with like an entourage of like twenty security guards, and they were like, it's just ridiculous. <laughs> Yeah. But i think you're right i think it is an image thing it's like if you walk it in is. with a lot I
1: think of people judge the art you know in a way we judge you or you sort of judge macy gray on that but actually you know a lot of it will be her record label her management who'll kind of think it looks great looks impressive the one thing is our members having this great conversation once uh, in a toilet with matt goss
0: okay so it's so at the cafe Royal. Be clear, was it matt goss's toilet that you have sitting on before <laughs> an interview we're
1: at, we're at the cafe royal and uh, at some big awards do that we were having at Capitol, and I noticed that him and his twin, Luke, had both turned up in separate, um, you know, S-Class Mercedes to this dude. Right. And and I I knew him really well because we'd known him since before he was famous, and now he was massive, okay? And we're both just standing there having a pee. I mean, it sounds really weird, this, but... um, and i said uh hey matt you know how you doing yeah good mate good mate out yeah how are you mate he's quite cute and uh, i said hey i noticed that you and luke turn up in separate cars there he went yeah well you know got to uh got to have a bit of image haven't you And i went that costs you a bit he goes no nah, the record label are paying for it i went matt hello you're paying for it yeah and he went no no the record label pay for it i went and no, honestly, they do, but they'll pay for it. But it comes out of your profits, right? So yeah. they'll take off five hundred quid a day for your your S class and five hundred quid for Luke's, and then so you're between you, you'll end up with a thousand quid less at the end of the day. Trust me. And yeah. he looked at me like I was a madman, and I went honestly, just yeah. ask the manager. And and then the next time I saw him, he went, you were right. And I kind of get, yeah, better to share a car, really, isn't it? Not being silly, <laughs> but you know. Because, you know, I think a lot of these artists, when it all starts kicking off and happening, yeah. what they forget is they they are actually footing the bill for everything. Mm. <laughs> and oh, yeah. they that when they get their statement.
0: Yeah. And then, then what, what is it they call it? Recoupment kicks in. Yeah. And mm. the record company just like, yeah, security, lawyers, uh, agent, AR, and mm. well, Yeah, you're paying for all of it. I know it seemed like we were showering you with all of these treats and everything. But actually, mm. <laughs> we're going to need that back. Um, so when they do show up on their
1: own, it's it's really quite refreshing. I mean, I remember, gosh, it was probably about 2004, U2, who, again, let's be honest, one of the biggest bands of all time, actually. Mm. So they were celebrating getting to number one on the album chart and the singles chart in the same week. Something mm. they'd never done in their career. And, and amazingly, they were still really excited about it because, you know, they were going made us feel really relevant, right? Number mm. one album, number one single, that's amazing. And at the time, uh, well, as it is now, Capital Radio was based in Leicester Square. We'd moved from Eastern Tower to Leicester Square. And they were all gonna come on my drive time show, to have a chat. And what was amazing, um, one by one, all of you 2 turned up on their own, on their own, mm. right? So Bono had wandered across um, Leicester Square and just come in on his own. And it's like, hello, I've come on to be on the show. And one by one, they all come in. And there were no bouncers. I think they had their manager with her or someone from the with them for or someone from the record company. But again, one of they could have turned up and made a massive big deal. Mm. They just all wandered in. And then at the end of it, they all kind of just wandered off. And you go, Wow, if you want to be in a way, I guess a little bit normal, you can yeah. yeah. you don't always have to be the big superstar.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose <clears throat> that's probably easier to uh, uh, what's the word sort of to, to action that humbleness now as we, like we mentioned earlier about how nothing special anymore. There's you know these radio stations and all that. Like with the the diluted relevance and the lack of specialness now, <laughs> maybe it is easier to just like walk straight into a radio station.
1: <laughs> no, well, no, I look, I have to say, I, I I still want to always say, I still love radio. Yeah. And I still think radio is special. I think there are some, it's just slightly changing. Like all these things, everything adapts, everything moves, mm. nothing stays the same. So, you know, yeah, talk radio is doing re- really well at the moment and podcasts are doing really well. I mean, podcasts are interesting because people, when podcasts and someone are giving it a new name, podcast, when it first happened, you're going, wow, there are these new things called podcasts. And you go, it's just talk radio on demand. It's not like a new thing. It's just mm. some people talking. It's well, I think Rogan just talking, but then you can just record it and go. I'd like to listen to it now, please, rather yeah. than have to listen to it, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning or when. Well, it?
0: I I think what made it different for me was like, uh, to me, it was something that could be produced independently, which is one of the things that excited me about it. Because like, whether I was so, I used to do a lot of stand up comedy back in the day, and I used to run my own nights. And before that, I did a lot of music, a lot of band stuff. Uh, and I was always hugely bought into the punk rock, do it yourself aspect of things. And so when podcasting became a thing and I, I jumped on it pretty late, I thought I'd sort of missed the boat. But one way or another, it seems to have um, uh, attracted an audience, which is good. Um, uh, but it it disappoints me a little bit when I see official radio stations putting out content on demand is how I would see that stuff as though like it would be branded as a podcast like check out the lbc podcast don't forget to download the lbc i'm like that's not a podcast like a podcast is two women having a glass of wine exchanging stories about guys that they hooked up with like 10 years ago and ten thousand people tune into it uh they download it off spotify you can set it up cheaply on pinecast like it to me it feels indie and punk rock and diy yeah. when it starts bleeding out into the mainstream And it becomes this sort of gentrification of broadcast of do you know what i mean like it's like it it's disappointing i feel like it's being dragged away from the thing that made it special
1: yeah i would agree look i think there was something beautiful about and look tech has changed so many things it's enabled so it's enabled like this conversation Mm. to happen you know from your home and my home and we're just sitting having this great chat and videoing it you you know obviously a lot of the tech really two things can often really change tech and that's war is one of them because suddenly the technological advances Mm. are massively made and then look we had a pandemic which did the same thing when the world was told to stay at home and suddenly everyone was going shit we got to be in contact how do Mm. we do this and so Zooms and teams and all these things, everything massively got a lot of money chucked at it. And now we can all exist like this and cheap microphones that sound really good link up to your computer on your mobile phone. It's brilliant. Right. So mm-hmm. we can all have access to which does make it feel you can make music. Look at Billie Eilish, her and her brother make like multi-million selling albums, Grammy ordering stuff in their frigging bedrooms. And it's fantastic. Right. Mm-hmm. But It comes down to the people, the talent at the, that start using the tech. You know, you have to be talented to start with. It doesn't. You can't polish a (laughs) turn, right? That great old expression. But I mean, look, it's the tech's been a fab thing, and I know what you mean. It feels like the official LBC, tip, as you mention it, you know, podcast is really. I suppose well, this is this is the evolution of where radio is going to go. You kind of go. Do I need to have a station that's here twenty four hours, seven days a week? three six hundred feet or can i just go let's make a podcast for an hour and then listen to it when you're on the tube or when you're going to work or when you get home and you've got a bit of time it's sort of on demand is how the world is look at tv you know I think yeah. you'll become a lot similar you know yeah. so I, you watch what you want when you want
0: and you'll listen to what you want when you want i think i think you're probably right um I, i'd like to sort of round off because i know we're a bit short on time now so i'd like to round off with a couple of quick fire questions um okay. they may or may not actually that quick fire but i'll try and get through them nice and quickly for you um right. here we go are you ready i'm ready okay so neil fox you did the pepsi chart mark goodyear hosted the radio one top 40 within those years though there were obviously chart rivalries take that and e17 blur and oasis but who would win in a fight between you and mark goodyear
1: we won we, we one. We and I say we because uh when I, I was the face of the Pepsi chart and I started it in ninety three and we ended in two thousand and five and but it was a massive team of people that put it together.
0: I thought for a second you meant we were, as in you and Mark Goodyear, had teamed up and beaten people like in a pub together. You know? Oh, like, I did know, yeah,
1: you know, is- <laughs> we beat people. No, uh, no. Well, we beat, you know, obviously we ended up, you know, when we started doing the chart, I mean, Radio 1, I think had four times the listenership of us. What was the old network chart didn't do that well. And then the Pepsi chart changed the whole format. We changed so much about that show and it became a very entertaining Sunday afternoon show, very different really from the Radio One chart. So, we gave a prop, there was a proper um alternative. You could either have us, which was a bit bright and loud and different, or theirs, which was at 40, at 39, at 38. So, they did theirs right. in a traditional way, and we did a whole new way, and uh, we ended up doing rather better in the ratings. But he was, I mean, uh, Mark Goodyear and I, I know Mark really well, he was a brilliant jock. And really lovely fella. And actually, we had this really lovely, friendly rivalry while we're doing it all the time between us. About what's amazing between us, about 10 million people on a Sunday afternoon listen to a countdown.
0: Yeah. Okay. uh, question two. Uh, Most DJs can choose what songs they want to play, either from the A-list or B-list or whatever. Or if it's a nighttime show, maybe the selection is a little bit more about what they personally want to play, but hosting a top 40 show means you're basically just told what to play again and again. Was there ever a time when you thought, do you know what? Fuck this. I'm going to play okay computer from start to finish.
1: (laughs) Um, There were definitely times when, uh, yeah. Of course, we get bored of seeing the same old thing, but, you know, uh, there I, I'm going to say one, So uh, the sort of politically correct answer to this is you always kind of go, if you play for Chelsea, you're going to have to wear a blue shirt, right? right? So if I decided to, I want to work for Capital Radio, which is a massive number one top 40 station, it comes with, I've got to wear the blue shirt, right? I can't yeah. suddenly go, yeah, but I really want to wait, play that amazing album track from Blur on my boss would go, well, you fucking well can't, all right? <laughs> <laughs> um, he, he was very funny. Sometimes people did try and play their own songs. Yeah, and um, I remember very famously he said, "It's a great song, Foxy," in that broad Scottish accent. He says, "If you want it, go home and play it on fucking repeat. If you want to, but <laughs> not on my station." And that's to a certain extent, I kind of understand it. Yeah. At the same point, there were songs that you'd listen to and kind of go, "God, I really like this." So I remember, I remember first things. A random song this uh, Enigma and Sadness. Do you oh Yeah, that? yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the Gregorian monks set yeah. to a dance beat. Yeah. And I remember hearing it somewhere thinking, this is really cool. And I wanted to play it on my show. And so I did. I mean, it wasn't like, it wasn't like a crazy shot song, was it? It ended up at number one. Yeah. But yeah. I remember sort of them going, why are you playing that? We just thought it's going to be massive. Yeah. And there was a certain amount in the evenings where you could get away with more because yeah. we were maybe a bit more, a little bit more about new music but new mainstream music, not new music like John Peel, new music, but here was lots of new stuff. So if you're a kid growing up listening to Kappa you probably know we were going to play big stuff first.
0: Yeah. 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 Well, There's that, never... old, that old adage, uh, what was it like uh, revenue by day reputation by night? Right. So <laughs> okay. at nighttime, fewer people listening, fewer advertisers, maybe you get away with something a little bit more experimental. Uh, question three. Yeah. Uh, if there was a new show out on Amazon Prime or Netflix or something, yeah, and the show was called "Times I Was a Bell End," what episode of your life would you donate to it? Um,
1: when have I been an absolute bell end? Do you know? I, I think <laughs> without realising, I'm sure, I'm sure my wife would tell you many times. Um, I think there are moments, probably, when you. When I look back and you think, oh my, Actually, I tell you, I, there was a day and I often look back and go, what a twat. And this is not meant to sound, um, I was with a friend of mine who was a famous actor and it was, it. okay, this sounds like a really sort of, yeah, and I was going to interview Robin Williams, not Robbie, but Robin Williams. Okay. And my mate was going to come with me because he really liked Robin Williams, right? And we had a problem and we we're an hour we end up an hour early for this thing and on impulse i went out and bought a car right We're in park lane and i and i bought a porsche <laughs> right. right okay and i, I it wasn't like i didn't want a car i had been looking at it we said let's just went out and we'll just do it right and and i remember afterwards just th- going home slightly thinking what a twat i was a really <laughs> sort of it all felt a bit bob it all felt yeah it was all a bit i mean at of, least at it, least you all knew front of myself i even at the time i remember thinking that was a bit of a tossy thing to do wasn't it the whole thing about it was a bit yeah, it was just a bit idiotic, at, really.
0: At least you knew that you were buying a car for yourself rather than the record company supplying one. I and know, then you find out. Yeah,
1: I know. I know. I knew it was going to come out of my money. I, look, I'm supposed over the years as well. I think if you do get really well known, I don't look, I, I've tried to always be a normal bloke. Mm. When I'm just a normal bloke that was in a job. There's famous is, is a strange thing because it does turn people into weird people sometimes and i've always said just because you're in a well if you're a famous actor or a famous singer why does that Do you really feel it gives you the right to act like a twat towards someone why or be rude to someone so yeah. i've never i've always tried to go no like, everyone's got their story to tell everyone's you know everyone's the same really i just was always in a job where people either knew who I was because I was on telly or or they listened to me on the radio so they knew who I was so that's why they wanted to speak to me but it didn't necessarily make me better or different from anyone it just had my job did so I've always tried to genuinely try to go and I think most people I know I'm sure there must have been times when I've probably been a bit of a tosser <laughs> you know, where, you, where, where you may yeah, have yeah. been full of yourself but I've really tried not to you would so think it would not, sort of not
0: me. you'd think as you get better known more famous uh you would expect that would put more of a veneer over people like they would be extra careful about how they come off but i think you're right i think for some people maybe it gives them license in some psychological capacity to to act like the big dog maybe i don't know and i and and i've never tried work i've always because i think i've had quite a lot of
1: big famous people that I've seen act really badly, and you kind of go, why did you do that? You know, when you've seen it up close, you kind of go, just like a knob. Why why would you do that?
0: Okay. Um, Yeah. I've got two more questions. Uh, So, question number four. When you were on Brass Eye for the Peter Geddon special, um, how exactly... (laughs) Did you end up
1: reading? Did they get us? Did they get, look, do you know what's <laughs> really interesting about that? I mean, that was a really, really clever TV show. Yeah. Because what they did was, obviously, you don't see, I don't i to say, the whole process. Right. So, they, you know, and actually, so it came as a request from our press office have right. been contacted we're doing a show can we come and film so you kind of think oh it's all come from legitimate reasons and the press people have come in and then you end up in a way they i mean they get you to say more and more ridiculous things and i've watched other ones as well where the sort of same thing happened and then sort of all of a sudden when they edit all edit it all together you end up going oh, how how in a way, how did I not see this coming? Is but that's a very, it, very clever show.
0: Did they get you, was it like a, a slow uh, frog, like boiling slowly, in the th- so they ask you to say 50 different things, like in a row, and that was just like one of them, and then they're like, ah, we got him. Or
1: I ge- I genuinely, because that's a long time ago now, I genuinely can't, I mean, exactly remember the process. But all I remember was when we watched it, you're kind of going, fuck, how, how did they get us to that stage? Yeah, but yeah. I think, what were they... They're very clever, those programs. Actually, there isn't anything quite like it now where I may- maybe it's because we're people are getting, I was going to say people are getting wiser to, in a way, people doing those sort of mock documentaries. But actually, I was going to say, I think people are as gullible as ever. And people, are, and there is a, probably a whole host of people that, from all those reality shows and what have you that want to be on anything else and they'd probably say yes to anything do you know what i mean but yeah they, yeah. they were a clever team i have to say, take my hat off we sort of went clever team clever people who was, who was the lead guy of that chris morris. One, yeah. chris morris yeah very very smart and you watch the other stuff he did you kind of go they made a. they were clever
0: yeah yeah and i think clever. there's something there's something really nice and what i'm picking up from the way that you were talking before about people who are famous and they act like a bit of a end, and then this is like there's something really nice about when somebody just kind of holds their hands up and goes like all right (laughs) you got me fine you know well they look they were
1: yeah i think it's really good to admire i always admire people when they're doing a good job Mm. right or when they've done something clever and um i think i mean i used to watch that show all the time and it was just very cleverly done it was it took a lot of intelligence to do what they did mm. and also like a lot of those really good setups if you know what i mean they take an awful lot of planning mm. and uh and they yeah they do take a lot of yeah. planning it's like social take, conditioning
0: yeah. fermenting getting to know the person and they,
1: they, all it's, of that uh, and also just the whole premise of how they approach say capital radio mm. you know they've done it all in the right way so everything felt like it's all been done legitimately
0: yeah, and yeah.
1: I suppose you don't see there are no red flags going
0: up. Yeah, yeah. Another you know, clever okay. stuff.
1: Take you know, very, very clever, very clever team.
0: Um, so, in that spirit, uh, my last question is: uh, Would you mind now re-recording the line for me now? But could you say, "Hi, I'm DJ Neil Fox. Tune in to Aid Thompson and other disappointments tonight for a stimulating discussion about media." There's no real evidence to suggest it will be. But it is scientific fact.
1: (laughs) That's a very long expression to be said. Hello I'm Neil Fox and and, uh, can I please recommend that you tune into Abe Thompson's uh, brilliant podcast uh, of which I'll be a feature of. It's it's going to be an absolutely fascinating uh, discussion about media and other topics of course there's no scientific proof to say that he is a genius but he clearly is.
0: Thank you so much, Neil Fox. Um, okay, guys, thank you very much uh, for for everyone that's tuned in. Um, if you've enjoyed this episode or perhaps some of the other stuff that I've put out, uh, do consider popping a little uh, super thanks tip in the tip cup for me here on YouTube. Uh, or if you've been enjoying uh, all of the other content that I've been putting out for a while, why not consider joining my goddamn cult over on Patreon or here on YouTube? If you click on my profile, click the little join button, uh, you can find the links in the description also. Um, And if you join Patreon or the community thing on this, um, you get episodes of the podcast two days before everybody else. Uh, We've got a a Discord chat. I'm in there before and after most episodes as they go out. Um, We're currently organising the next London meetup that's going to take place in March. You get first dibs for the live shows um, for tickets. Uh, We did one in Soho last year, one in Tower Hill, one at Glastonbury. Um, I think there should be more dates coming up soon, I just need to check in with, uh, with Danny Price. Uh, also, I'm in the process of organising the monthly one-to-one Skype calls with my Patreons, my backers. Uh, oh, and finally, you get credited, or named and shamed, at the end of shows like this. So, big thanks to Rachel Harris, Bowman, Kai, Chris D, David Voice, Martin Maracas, Mojo Sabian, uh, Peter Del Monte, Pingu, Stuart Chesmar. T-Rex in a Top Hat Aaron Smith Alex Souter Jeff McGow, MJ Nichols Ned Berg Sarah Setters Simon Flack uh, My namesake Aid Margaret Abogai I hope I'm saying that correctly Encore fois. Cyclicity And Christine Cash Thank you so so much guys For your continued support of the show That's it from me. Thanks once again to my guest uh, for this evening, Neil Fox, and uh, I'll be back next week, the solo show, Tuesday night. Until then, keep it strictly hashtag Bimfluencer and I'm out this motherfucker.